HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. It's Thanksgiving, so we're talking turkey with sweet potato casserole, stuffing, cranberry sauce, and pecan pie. But we're also discovering some surprising truths about this holiday. As it turns out, roasted turkeys are actually nowhere near the original Thanksgiving tables. In fact, most of the foods we eat for Thanksgiving today weren't eaten in Plymouth. And you know, a lot of the dishes came about, well, because of the products that were on the shelves and the marketing that told us this is the product we should use. Every once in a while, though, the consumer creates the food trend. Care to top the turducken, anyone? Uh, I've got to give credit to this fellow that said this is the best pile of meat I've ever had and then said, but if you added bacon. Tune in to this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Currently based in Asheville, North Carolina, Meredith Lee is a farmer, butcher, chef, educator, and author of two books, The Ethical Meat Handbook and Pure Charcuterie, all in search of realistic solutions for sustainable, ethical, good, and real food. Hi, Meredith. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Coral. Thanks for having me. So um, I actually want to start with the commercial we just listened to, and I actually started the show last week with this, too, because I find it so provocative. Do you truly believe that consumers create the trends? Oh. <laughs> right well, into it. Yeah, just d- diving in. Um, this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently, um, because that's the story we're told, right, a lot, that um, we vote with our food dollar, right, and mm. that we have an impact as such on what is the trend. Um, but I'm, <laughs> I'm starting to really question that. I, I feel like, I feel like it's possible. Yes. But I think mostly the people who own foods future and set the trends are the people who are actually doing it. So the farmers, the chefs, the, you know, um, and, and the media folk behind it. Mm-hmm. 
So we'll go back um, to our intro. Before you were a butcher, you were actually a vegetarian for 10 plus years. And in reading both your books, um, I've come to see that the transition really isn't so off-brand. Can you talk about your journey um, and how both kind of support ethical meat in their own indirect way? Um, Yeah, so I, I guess I became a vegetarian because I was aggravated with you know, the political, uh, the highly political nature of our food system. And also the, I was feeling very empathetic towards, um, the animals. Um, and so I felt that the most useful thing for me to do would be to opt out of that system as many people do. Um, but as I started farming, I came to realize the role of the animal in, in the landscape and the ecosystem of a farm um, and then as an eater could not afford anymore to be so simplistic with my, my decision making. And so chose to start eating meat again as a new way of addressing the same political aggravation, right. And frustration with a lack of empathy, um, towards nature include, and that includes animals as well as people, human animals, um, who work in the food system, um, and by doing that, instead of by checking out, but by like checking in and really trying to challenge the way things are done and offer a new way of, of growing, cooking and eating um, that would provide a middle ground, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually did that in college. Um, I think I saw like a PETA film or the mm-hmm. uh, Super Size Me and was kind of like, OK, like my choice in regulating my self-morality is to not eat meat but um you know there's a lot of criticism where it's like you're not doing anything really the system will go on without you so how does choosing meat how are you still or how are you working to fight the system Hmm. well i think it's worth noting that if enough people did that then it probably would affect the system Mm -hmm. right and so that's that like the consumer chooses um sort of mentality and so there is some merit. Like, I think that that movement of, of opting out of industrial meat by becoming vegetarian or vegan is responsible for a lot of the consciousness that we now possess, you know, in terms of like uh, the environment and um, animals in our food system. So I think it deserves some credit, credit to a point, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that like it became very clear to me that the people who have the greatest impact on the lives and deaths of animals are the people who are eating meat still and not the people who have chosen not to eat meat right and Mm -hmm. so I guess once I had that realization and felt that there was really no option there's there's no other story you know right now at this moment in time then the way I'm choosing to affect change is by really analyzing and digging into the entire supply chain so looking at how you know the animal's life death butcher and cook and unpacking all those steps and all the players along the supply chain and saying, how can we do it with integrity at every step of the way? Mm -hmm. Which is perfect. Could you actually provide um, kind of like our deep dive into each step of the way and what sustainable good practice looks like ideally in each step? Um, Sure. So, I mean, I guess it's a lot of my work is based on people taking responsibility and really checking into their role along the supply chain. So starting with, obviously starting with production, um, where, where it all begins, the farmer's role is to give the animal a good life. Um, 
And so that means that the animal is able to act out its natural tendencies and that it is um, not stressed, you know, in in its life um, and that it's provided with everything that it needs. And it also means that the animal is not... Um, is not taking too much from the resource on which it depends, right? So, mm-hmm. so the pastures aren't overgrazed or degraded or eroded, um, that waste is not being becoming a problem, you know, that it's being recycled properly. Um, and so that's a pretty sacred, that's a pretty sacred work. And I mean, to outline all the things that could or should happen in order for that to be honored is like, is like, you know, it's the subject of many, 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 many books, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> of like how we farm. And in many ways, we don't yet, I think, have it completely figured out. Um, but those are the basic goals um, for the good life. And the good death being one where the animal is rendered completely senseless before it's actually killed. Um, and that there isn't stress in terms of like corralling the animal into, you know, the stunning box or, um, you know, abuse of the animal in advance of slaughter. Um, And then obviously that the animal is slaughtered in such a way that doesn't make its carcass unusable, right? So it's Mm -hmm. done not only with integrity, but also with skill. And then the good butcher is someone who makes thrifty and efficient use of the entire carcass um, and also is able to educate and facilitate the end consumer getting what they need in order to, you know, do justice to the cooking part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the good cook is someone who makes it delicious and nutritious, right? And has the knowledge and the ability to do that so that nothing is wasted um, and so that there's meaning in in the act of, of, eating, of eating it to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's actually, let's go back to where you first started good life and good death um, or even just good life. I feel like you talk about this kind of careful and delicate dance almost of giving the animal enough, but not giving it too much so that it creates extra waste. And so do you think the, the biggest, um, I guess, struggle that we face is just pure volume. Um, the effects of you know, cow waste or overgrazing is just because we are producing so many, so much beef? Well, that's a really interesting question. It gets right to the heart of a lot of the argument that's going on in the industry today. Um, and I guess I would say that um, my experience and, and um, study is pointing to that it's not necessarily the volume. Hmm but it's how that volume is incorporated into natural systems, right? So the argument being that the animal has a role, the herbivore specifically, when we talk about beef or lamb, um, that they have a role in the ecosystem. And if we fit them in to that role um, in a way that is um, sort of like healthy feedback, right? Um, That we can produce quite a volume of and and support quite a volume of these animals depending on where you are of course um and so i think the argument could go both ways you could say yes we're we're raising way too many animals in a certain way in certain places right Hmm. um but you could also say that some of our some of our environmental situations have arisen because we're raising too few animals um or the animals are out of place um 
so it's, it becomes very, very complicated, right? And so this is why, again, why the farmer has such an incredibly sacred role in this process and, and really difficult role um, because, quite frankly, I don't, I'm not sure that anyone has it cleanly figured out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like um, the common consumer is more, or at least knows of the practice of planting corns, bean squash, you know, like in replacing what the soil needs. But how do animals and vegetables coexist? And as you put it, synergistically coexist? Oh, well, I mean, in many ways, I think first we could visit the ruminant animal, right? So cows or sheep um, or goats or rabbits um, or deer. And so these animals are made to eat plants, right? And um, by virtue of, of grazing, they do actually develop an exchange with the plant community. So, for example, if you were to take, um, and this there's research backs this up, if you were to take a stand of, of grass or forage and you were to mow it with, you know, a fossil fuel powered mower and then you were to graze, you know, another patch side by side that the resulting regrowth on the patch of land that had been grazed would actually have broader leaf area and more tillers, so lateral stem, um, than the mode section. Um, and this has to do with a lot of things. It has to do with the input of dung and urine from the from the grazing animal, but also it has to do with in, enzymatic exchange in the saliva of the animal. Um, and so that plant thereby then has more ability to photosynthesize, right? Because a broader leaf area and more lateral stems means more surface area for capturing solar energy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then like, as that solar energy is captured up to 40, 40 some to up, sometimes upwards of 50% of that photosynthetic product is actually, is actually released back into the soil in the form of soil exudates or sugar exudates in order to feed the microbial community in the soil that then supports the plant life. So this sort of elegant system is very, very complex, but it, it is shown, and we're learning more and more about it all the time, you know, that each, each trophic level is sort of supporting and giving back to its food source. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And we humans are like the ones that are not doing that. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. By and large. Yeah, I was going to say, it feels like we are, in fact, kind of messing up this already elegant solution that has been put in place by nature or whatever will. And so is the answer just to revert and remove machines? Mm. Because I feel like that's also <laughs> very unrealistic and yeah, I don't think removing machines is the answer. Um, I think that there is a role for the machine, especially in economies of scale, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about feeding lots of people. And also when we're talking about like technological advances that will be required or or we'll have to lean on potentially to repair some of the damage that we've done. Mm-hmm. So when I say that, like I'm referring to, I don't know if you've ever heard of key line design. No, I haven't. So this is like, this is like the the concept of um, kind of earthworks or like earth moving um, in, you know, places where water has become like really scarce or problematic or saline. And you're actually like creating berms and swales and planting trees and moving earth 
in such a way that allows like rainwater that falls to be cycled more efficiently. So like mm. captured and then reused within the landscape. And so this is like a perfect example of how, you know, it is like, um, it is like a reversion in some ways back to nature, but that we have to take some of the mechanical inventions, you know, that have been our undoing and borrow the best of those in order to, you know, shape the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think, I think restoring natural systems, I mean, it is about, it is about subverting a lot of the mechanical mind and, and model that we've developed like since like Newton Mm -hmm. (laughs) right so we're getting really far back there now Mm -hmm. but it's also it's about using the best of what we learned from that in order to do so so it's really intense and revolutionary Mm -hmm. I'm glad we're talking about it (laughs) yeah I'm, I'm now thinking about um you spoke about hating this, get, hating getting this question at farmers markets, which is why are these eggs eight dollars when I could go to Key Food or Kroger or whatever and get two for five? Um, so, what is your explanation for that, and what are the costs that we're really paying for those two fifty eggs or even one dollar eggs? Yeah, well, a lot of people don't. I mean, and it isn't it isn't necessarily a responsibility of every citizen to know how the food system works, but how it works by and large is that it's heavily subsidized. Um, by the government, um, and it's also vertically integrated. So those are two key things to understand when you're trying to unlock sort of what is the true cost of food. Um, and so the government subsidies are basically payouts to farmers. Um, it essentially takes the risk out of doing what is an inherently a risky, a risky business model, right, depending on nature in order to grow unpredictable yields of X, Y, and Z or whatever crops we need. And so the government says we guarantee you payment right um and so the system can go on right Mm -hmm. um and then the other thing is vertical integration and this is the system by which like corporations which control a large amount of the food supply control the entire supply chain so um taking chicken for an example they'll own the chickens themselves at the farms and then they'll have the farmer under contract so that's form of control over the farmer and then they'll own the slaughter facility they'll own the distribution network and sometimes even own the retail and retail facility and so that company can you know as the product moves up the supply chain it gains value at every step which is then that value is realized by that company and any waste that is realized along that way can be offset right um and so the, you know, kind of the new movement towards smaller scale agriculture or family owned farms again, or networks where we're breaking that supply chain back up again. Like, that's why we're seeing higher prices, right? Because, you know, if I, if, you know, if a large conglomerate corporation owns the farm, you know, the product, the distribution infrastructure and the retail center, then, you know, they have ultimate control and they don't have another guy trying to eke out profit at every step along the way. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But in a smaller economy, then you have like the farmers trying to make money off of the product and, you know, the butchers trying to make money off the product <laughs> um, and the slaughter facilities trying to make money off the product. And so, you know, that necessitates, a you know, a rise in cost. 
The other thing is that those eggs that you are wanting to pay less for, you know, at the farmer's market are not coming from a subsidized farm. So the farmer in that situation owns all the risk in producing that product. And so, you know, when you go buy eggs for two ninety nine or whatever you're saying at, at Kroger, wherever you shop, then you're actually, you know, you're paying a low price at the point of sale, but via your tax dollars, you're paying for the rest of that cost because you, as a taxpayer, are supplementing government subsidies to farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just about, you know, when you pay it and how you pay it. Um, but it's, it's a costly thing to do, working mm-hmm. with nature to produce necessary food and fiber. Right, and it's like even if we make the conscious or responsible choice of purchasing said $8 eggs, we are still kind of paying for those subsidized eggs, are we not? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, and not to, so, so we're doing both, like both and, right. you know? Um, and the farmer is too, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So the far, this is what's so fascinating to me about, and, and so solid to me about the bravery of, the new cohort of farmers is that they're not only capitalizing this revolution via like their business investment, but also via being like regular citizens who are paying taxes. And then also by having, you know, all of their emotional capital tied up in, you know, this endeavor. Mm-hmm. Which is, um, And then, you know, yeah. and then like the whole other conversation about like, if you want to pay eight dollars for the egg to like become part of that brave cohort like what if you can't mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and so that's like a whole nother rabbit hole right i also um back to the shopper i feel like there's a lot of confusion in just branding food or buzzwords that we use um i feel like it's really hard to shop or think about shopping critically when what does organic truly mean what does GMO truly mean and I there's this new thing I saw at Whole Foods which is um they say step one through five on their meat and each step has a kind of like a very vague blurb on how the animal was treated or how the animal was slaughtered and so how whose job (laughs) is it to really understand all this and is it deliberately being obfuscated for the consumer oh Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, all these questions are so great, um, but the answers are not simple. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think, yes, the effort to label is one that has come from very good intentions. It's saying like, wow, there's so much to unravel about the way we've been producing food for 70 plus years. And so we will do the consumer a favor by trying to be transparent, right? Or trying to create a standard by which we're producing food that the consumer can trust. Um, but then there's also been, with the rise in popularity for those types of foods, there's been, you know, of, you know, taking advantage of loopholes within standards, for example, in the organic program, where there's been the use of words that aren't regulated at all that just impart a more natural feeling, mm-hmm. right, to like the customer. What? And so, oh, like a perfect example is I walked into a grocery store somewhere, I think it was like on the road. And it just, they had this huge decal on the wall behind the butchery that said chicken naturally. <laughs> like, that's all it said, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not a label claim, so it's not illegal for them to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not actually saying anything at all, but like the color of the words and 
the font that they were in. Um, like if you were not thinking critically about food as many shoppers, you know, either are trying to or just aren't at all, then that would make you think perhaps that those chickens were raised under some special circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, they they probably weren't. And so, yeah, there's a lot of marketing ploys and there's a lot of gimmicks. Um, there's a group called A Greener World that's doing a really great work in terms of like deciphering label claims for consumers. Um, and so that's one place to start there. But I think, I mean, what I tend to say is that the more you need to trust a label in when you're searching for food or buying food, then the, the farther you are, right, mm-hmm. from, from it, usually. And so being, if you have the capacity and the means to be in relationship with a producer or processor of your food, then the label claim becomes less and less necessary. Mm-hmm. So let's get uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll talk about the reality of the farmers in um, kind of their difficulty in communicating their value to the consumer right after this. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the 8-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Before we got our Le Creuset, the cookware we used most often was an antique Griswold cast iron pan. It didn't take long for me to realize how much I'd been missing enamel cast iron in my life. Le Creuset has a superior heat retention of cast iron, but paired with the unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com slash H-R-N to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code H-R-N. This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm speaking with Meredith Lee. Um, I just I'm kind of internally laughing at the irony of the Le Creuset commercial on this show. Um, so can we let's get back to the um, the farmers and we were talking about this difficulty and kind of confusion in the marketplace for consumers but also um, there's this difficulty among the farmers in getting kind of the word out about their products to the consumers and so can you talk a bit about um, the idea of value-added products and like the figurative and literal meaning of value-added products hmm um well I mean, value-added products in my industry refer to further processed food. And, and so, like, like a, instead of strawberries, you're making strawberry jelly. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of pork, shoulder, you're making sausage. Um, and so, I guess the, the value of those is that they carry a generally higher market price. Um, so, the farmer can capture um, a better profit margin, right? Um, for an inherently, you know, low value starting product. Um, and then 
I guess, what was your question? You wanted to know yeah, I was what the value more, of them was. I guess what we were talking about before, which is the difficulty in translating um, the true cost of food and getting the consumer to buy, you know, the strawberry jam as opposed to Smuckers or Bummerman or something. Yeah, and I think also part of that is, like, because farmers have this, you know, farmers are motivated by, like, whole food and, like, you know, especially farmers in the new sort of wave of food production are, they're motivated by being able to provide whole pure foods to people, but they also have this awareness that people don't necessarily know how to use them. Mm -hmm. So value-added products are also serving the purpose of, like, I guess giving the consumer more of what the consumer is ready for and trying to meet the consumer where the consumer's at. Um, by giving them like the jam or the sausage, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) instead of the strawberry or the pork shoulder. Um, And then there's this whole other effort going to like educate people how to deal with the strawberry and the pork shoulder. You know, this sort of like, let's try to hit all the, all the gongs at once, Mm -hmm. you know. Right. Do you think it is kind of the task of the, overachieving home cook to learn these things or do you think there's because I feel like if we cut out the middleman of the Whole Foods or the big corporation it's just you know in this ideal world the farmer and the eater who who does the educational part well I think that that's certainly there I mean I think there's always going to be like these very zealous home cooks and um, homesteaders and people who have the time and the means and the willingness and the interest to add value to whole foods and that that's what they want to do and spend their time doing. And then there's always going to be people who don't. Um, and so I don't know that we'll ever cut out the middleman. I don't know if that that's really the goal or it maybe shouldn't be if it is for some people. Um, I think there will be models in which that is true, that there will be people who go to farmer's markets and buy food whole and fresh from farmers and then fabricate it themselves into deliciousness. Um, But I think, like, the goal more roundly and soundly is to, like, get people to understand that the product is going to cost more, you know, um, you know, from, from an unsubsidized farm that isn't vertically integrated in its raw form, the food will cost more than it does from, you know, Costco, Mm -hmm. um, which is coming from a highly consolidated, subsidized, vertically integrated system. And then again, if that, you know, food that's unsubsidized and, and not integrated is going to be, you know, further processed into something that's quicker for you to cook, then it will again probably cost more. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So n- not necessarily like simplifying the supply chain, but making the supply chain work for every player that is a part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking about um, this like weird alternate reality we have where we have frozen burritos, but they're actually entirely organic and sustainable. Um, so how do you get people to people that are, you know, they don't have time, they don't really care about food, but they want to support an alternate food system. How do you talk to them about spending more time on food, spending more money on food, um, taking the processing into their own home? Hmm. Well, I mean, there's a few ways to attack that. Um, I mean, some people are motivated by health. Some people are motivated by um, community. Um, So that's just a couple of examples. Like, if I can explain to you why it's going to be better for your family to grind your own beef rather than to buy, you know, 
um, ground beef that's a mix of animals from Uruguay and Brazil and Mexico and Canada and the U.S., um, you know, that's a, that becomes very simple for some people, mm-hmm. you know, if they're worried about E. coli or they're worried about food safety and traceability and things like that. Um, some people won't care about that at all, but they will get the argument that, you know, if I buy more whole from a farmer, then I reduce the farmer's processing costs and um, thereby create a world in which a farmer can make an honest living, you know, and so that feels important to me and, you know, motivates me. Um, you know, and some people, I mean, uh, Guy at the Mad Symposium said it best this last summer. He said, quite frankly, the reason the food system is the way it is is because most people don't give a shit about food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I wouldn't be able to have either one of those arguments with someone who does not care at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you. So th- in general, those people aren't listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so do you feel like there is. Is there like a viable career for a young farmer? Is it, is it even popular still to go into farming? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that there are, I, I think it's fraught. You know, I think that it is storied and risky for sure. Um, but there are plenty of models um, that are being popularized today um, that are showing that farmers can be profitable and and can have a decent quality of life and can also be regenerating the land, which for many people, that's why they start. They start because they're really activists at heart, Mm -hmm. you know, and they want to like love the world and do right by it. And and so they go into farming, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and then you know, it's kind of a long slog, but, but there is a way to, um, to do it, I think. So we talked a bit about the government subsidies and government help. Um, what other obstacles are young farmers facing in starting up a new farm? Oh, um, well, land, land is a big, a big thing. Um, I mean, I'm, I'd say we're probably on the verge, if not in the midst of the largest transfer of land in a really long time, you know, as we have like generational change happening right now. Um, Land ownership is changing a lot right now, but how it will change is like a big question. So is that land going into development or is that land being preserved for agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. But just like the high cost of land, um, the viability of land, climate change, like all those things are really big for young farmers right now. I think access to information and um, resources is a really big deal. Um, so, you know, if you, if you're still trying to figure out how to do it, <laughs> you know what I mean? If we're all trying to figure out how to make the system work, then asking people to risk their, you know, some of their most, you know, vibrant years and some of their money and emotional faculty into that effort is, is really, it's a lot, you know, so there's a, there's a high rate of burnout, mm-hmm. I would say. That's a huge, that's a huge thing. I mean, when you say, is there opportunity for farmers? It's like, well, there's absolutely opportunity, but does that mean that every single person who enters the field is going to succeed and going to make a profit? Well, the answer is absolutely not. 
you know, and I think that sort of the fervor of the new food movement has definitely been like, you can farm and there, and, you know, a lot of support like at the outset, but maybe like 10 years in, you know, are we getting farmers the support they need, like financially, equipment wise, um, you know, just professional development wise, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's pretty scrappy. And in, and as such, I think it's it's difficult. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've thrown a lot of all in or all out um, options at you. And so in kind of fixing what we have today and kind of participating in alternate food system, but still being the proper citizen and supporting whatever we live in now, um, what are some small choices that the the consumer can make? You know, would we talk about buying at the farmer's market, but what else? Um, well, I think, um, just trying to become educated as much as you have time for or can about, um, about what farmers are doing, right? So what are all these people and and all these chefs and, and, and folks who are interested in this kind of stuff and who are trying to tell a different story, what are they doing and why, why it's important, I think is really like a super important thing that consumers can do. And then that in and of itself is going to open up a lot of opportunity, right? Because once you start looking into like why all these people are talking about this, and doing this, then you'll understand why it's important. And you'll see, you know, Oh, for example, buying a, a bigger cut of meat and breaking it down myself is actually supportive of this new food economy. And this like, not simplified, but, but enlivened supply chain, right? So it supports farmers, it supports me, it supports butchers, um, you know, so that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is just cooking differently, cooking at all, <laughs> um, eating things that we're less accustomed to eating, understanding that, you know, with, with respect to animals that, you know, the entire animal has to be valued and used otherwise the farmer doesn't make money and there's extra waste you know that's already a problem in terms of environmental degradation um and so yeah learning to use the whole animal learning to eat lesser used cuts um and then there are ways that you know food food purveyors like butchers and restaurateurs and people can be you know chefs and home cooks have the greatest flexibility in this in this respect of like helping people eat things that they're not used to eating mm-hmm. um, and incentivizing them to do so. Yeah. You write in your book um, that throwing a piece or throwing a cut that you're unfamiliar with away just because you don't know how to eat it is totally unacceptable. And can you talk a bit about the economy of choice cuts, why certain cuts are more expensive and why others are? Yeah, that's yeah. a great question. Uh, great question. So, um, you know, in the process of uh, simplifying food, you know, which is, I mean, in and of itself, it's a really interesting prospect because food is like probably one of the most complicated things ever because it's nature (laughs) and nature is inherently complex. It's necessarily complex. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this attempt that we've made for a really long time now to simplify it, like you can understand why we wanted to do that or to make it easier, to make it quicker, to make it more efficient, to make it more um, standardized. Um, and so, 
And so in that effort, you know, for better or for worse, we came to value quick cooking cuts, right, Mm -hmm. over things that took more time. And so as, as a result, we value in the market middle meats, as we call them in the industry. So these are like ribeyes, New York strip steaks, pork chops, loin chops, um, meats from the back of the animal and the belly of the animal over meats from higher activity portions of the carcass. So shoulders and hams and things like that, which do more work, um, are tougher relatively than those meats in the middle. And so they take longer to cook. They favor low slow cooking. Um, they favor techniques that have really sort of gone out of not necessarily fashion, but just sort of out of like the cultural consciousness um, for cooking. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as a result, they carry a lower price at market. Um, But sort of, I mean, the premise of, of like ethical meat eating and ethical meat cookery is that no muscle is more valuable than another provided you know how to cook it. Mm -hmm. And so the education point there is, well, here's how you cook it. Right. And mm-hmm. here's how if you understand that 70 percent of this animal prefers low, slow cooking or smoking or preserving. Right. Then um, you're on your way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking like the um, like the tongue and the tail, both that require a lot of time. But they're also just the single, you know, there's just one of them on the entire animal. And so why are those priced at less? And is it is it really a possibility to have, you know, just quote, beef, all one flat rate. Oh, like one price? Right, like if if we are to eat consciously and diversely. Um, And so when I go to the market, I just want five pounds of beef and it doesn't matter what cut. Is that something, is that a reality the farmer wants to put out? Is that something the consumer can stomach? Um, Well, I think that that is an interesting question. I think that the answer is again, yes and no. Like for example, in Jamaica, Mm-hmm. One might raise a goat, one might butcher a goat with a machete, and one might just simply sell hunks of whatever one has to a consumer for a flat rate, and the consumer may not know what in the world they're getting and may not care because, you know, they know how to deal with it or because they're cooking it all in one way or something, and so that system works, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> a farmer may really favor selling its their meat for a flat rate, um, for example, if I can raise an entire cow and I can sell you, Coral, this entire cow, you know, at X price per pound, you know, and you're going to take it all away, the bones and, you know, the feet and the tongue and the brain, um, then great, that that works for me, right? Because if I don't have to pay a processor to cut all those pieces up and wrap them all up for X, you know, extra price per pound and then sell you only what you want, and then I've got a freezer full of all the stuff you don't want, you know, then I win, mm-hmm. right? But but there are also, I mean, I'm sure that there are scenarios in which the farmer, you know, if the farmer doesn't add value to the product, then the farmer doesn't gain as much profit margin. And so there are also producers out there that will say, no, I don't want to sell more whole, and I don't want to sell at a more standard rate, you know, I want the variability, you know? Um, and so I think, you know, I think there's room for both, Mm -hmm. quite frankly. Um, it just depends on, it depends on the system. You know, a farmer who doesn't have a butcher 
who or a processor who's able to process the carcass in the way that they want to um, may be served very well by selling more whole at a flat rate. Um, but where there is um, infrastructure and a market to support like value-added cuts, then mm-hmm. the farmer may not. Okay, so I think we have time for um, one more question. Let's just get back to you and your books and your work. Um, the way, or I think you are arguably best known or uh, popular for your charcuterie classes um, in which you demystify charcuterie, which is a very intimidating process for the home cook. So why is it important for you to empower the home cook and make these classes incredibly accessible? Oh, well, um, I think that if we are really going to like consciously and realistically try to eat the whole animal, then we have to learn some preservation techniques. So that was sort of the impetus for for a mastery of charcuterie and understanding it. Um, But I think also just like, you know, from an activist viewpoint, I see charcuterie as this like very gourmet thing in the world. Like Mm -hmm. people, people see it as this sort of like rich person's food or, um, or, you know, interest, but actually it's food from very industrious people all over the world who didn't have options or, or financial means, right? And so it's actually like it feels very right and natural to try and give it to people um, in a way that's very accessible um, because not only is it going to unlock ways for them to be more supportive of farmers and, and sound environmental farming practices um, and deliciousness, you know, in their home that they can enjoy with community, Um but it also just feels like it's almost their right. It's almost people's right to understand um, and and to be able to do to do this. Mm-hmm. And my feeling is that people are very hungry, and so as many doors as we open and and let them come in, you know, the better. And and doing that with the full awareness that not everyone will be interested, not everyone will have the means, and not everyone, you know you know, we'll pick it up again. That's fine with me, you know, but, in, but at least have all the doors open. Mm-hmm. This we is want a, to change things. Yeah. Uh, so having my charcuterie fridge from you um, in my house is actually the first project that my boyfriend actually cares about. Usually he doesn't really care for my weird kitchen things, but because it has this oh, weird right like on. fridge machinery controller things, he's super into it. So you've converted a non-foodie into being interested in food. Oh, wow. Coral, <laughs> that's so great. Thanks for telling me that. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me today, Meredith. Um, this is Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coral Lee. Thanks so much, Coral. Have you heard? It's party time. Monday, December 3rd is Winter in the Garden, Heritage Radio Network's second annual year-end gala at the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe. Join HRN's staff, hosts, members, and some very talented chefs and bartenders for a delicious evening that will kick off the holiday season and support our end-of-year fundraising drive. The evening will begin with a VIP hour, complete with bubbles and oysters. Then, all of our guests will work their way around two spacious rooms filled with food stations and bars, sampling fare from some of our favorite chefs. Sip on your choice of cocktails, beer, wine, sake, and cider 
while bidding on exclusive silent auction items. 2019 is our 10th anniversary. So whether you've been a member since Roberta's first opened, or if you just discovered your new favorite food podcast, please consider supporting us with a ticket purchase so we can start the year on solid ground. We'd love to see you at the garden. So join us on December 3rd. For more information and to purchase tickets, go to heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.